Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. First, in moments, Isabel Hilton looks at China as its ruling Communist Party conducts its quinquennial Congress. And at the bottom of the hour, Alex Vitale looks at the awfulness of American policing and what needs to be done about it. Before that, a few words. Thursday, October 19, marks the 30th anniversary of the great 1987 stock market crash. When it happened, I thought it was 1929 all over again. That it wasn't made me rethink all the disaster instincts I'd picked up from Marxian political economy. Perhaps that rethink made me too skeptical of disaster scenarios. But what I've said ever since is that if you can't find a good critique of capitalism when it's working reasonably well, you shouldn't hope for it to go off the rails as a deus ex machina deliverance. As we've seen over the past few years, crises aren't always a gift to the left. They're often a gift to the right. And now China. Every five years, the ruling Communist Party gathers in a Congress during which major decisions around personnel and policy are made. This time around, word is that leader Xi Jinping is looking to consolidate his power and transform himself into one of modern China's major leaders. Here's Isabel Hilton, editor of ChinaDialogue.net, with more. The Party Congress uh, is obviously a big deal, happens every five years, uh, but who is it and what is the Congress's role in the Chinese political system? Um, the Party Congress uh, is attended by about 2,300 people. Um, the main ones are the Central Committee itself uh, and the Politburo, which is elected by the Central Committee, and then finally the Standing Committee, the Politburo. And that's ranged in, in numbers from uh, five to seven to nine. And those are the men, they always have been men, who run China. Among them, there is the General Secretary, currently Xi Jinping, and the Prime Minister, um, who is currently Li Keqiang. So, so you're looking at the party elite, and since this is a party state, this is the this is the group that also runs the state. It it approves policy every ten years. In the last uh, in the last few years, uh, it has been the place where you learn who the next leaders are going to be. That may have changed a little now. The party-state relationship, the party is still uh, supreme. Uh, it, it sounds rather like the old Soviet Union. Is this a similar structure? Um, it's essentially a similar structure in that it's a, it's a Leninist state. Um, now, clearly, since 1949, this has changed over the years. Mao Zedong almost destroyed party because the party had had virtually put him on the sidelines. So he counterattacked with you know a movement from the streets, and he, he took down a great many people in the party. And he made himself you know, the supreme leader, the cult of personality, all that stuff that we're familiar with. When Deng Xiaoping took over after Mao's death, he was very anxious to avoid that happening again. And he made a speech to the Politburo in the 1980s, which said, essentially, it's time to, for the party to step back and let the state function um, and to build up the capacity of the state and also to avoid the danger of another Mao Zedong. He essentially instituted a system in which power changed. There was a more of a collective leadership and that, that the, the incumbents, the ruling group, uh, would have a, a, an initial five years followed by a second term. And after that, they would step down. And they would also step down um, if they got to the age of 69, 70. There was an, 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 an informal age limit. That has functioned since Deng Xiaoping. But that now, with Xi Jinping, looks as though it may be changing. And it looks as though Xi Jinping may have ambitions to stay longer. He, he, if he doesn't indicate a, a, a kind of succession uh, figure at this party congress, that will confirm the suspicion that he may be planning to stay longer. He regards himself as a leader of much greater importance than his immediate predecessor, Hu Jintao, and he puts himself on a parallel with Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping, um, the, the two big leaders of, of the People's Republic. So trying to get his thought elevated into the party constitution, a tremendous kind of national hymn of praise that we've been seeing, you know, speaks to the personality cult and the concentration of power in his hands. So it is a little bit of a moment uh, in the People's Republic, in which the relationship between the party and the state is changing again in favor of the party. I'd like to uh, talk about the ingredients of uh, Xi's thought in a moment, but you know, the caricature in much of the West is that you know China is, is, is some sort of totalitarian state. It may not be the, like the days of old, but it's still, to a lot of 
uh, civil-minded people in the West, just like uh, you know, a, a totalitarian regime. It sounds like you know a group of I don't know over two thousand people who make up this party congress. This is a fairly complicated structure. I mean, what kinds of internal politics go on within this party that end up producing uh, results in terms of governance and policy? Well, you know, if you're the leader, you have to be playing off and or and or satisfying a whole bunch of of constituent parts, as you say. I mean, we are talking about the group that that. Uh, holds power over 1.3 billion people. That's a fifth of humanity. So it's always going to be a little complicated. Since the party expanded uh, its horizons under Jiang Zemin, uh, you have uh, big business leaders in the party now. You always had the army playing a fairly important role. Uh, The party is supposed to command the gun, but of course the influence of the army has at times been, been very strong. Um, you've got provincial party secretaries. You used to have, and I think this is fading a bit, two quite well-identified factions. Uh, one came up through the Party Youth League, um, and the other was l- loosely described as the Princelings. That's the the younger generations of the old revolutionary leaders. The old revolutionary leaders are, are not around anymore, but their families are around. And they were a kind of red nobility who still hold a lot of power. Um, and in fact, uh, Xi Jinping is one of them, as was Bo Lai, who was a prospective leader who got taken out um, just before the last party congress. So it's a very complicated place. And and to get to the top of it, the, the requirements, again, they shift over, they've shifted over time. So it used to be said of Hu Jintao, the, the immediate predecessor of Xi Jinping, that he got to the top by not offending anyone and not saying anything. I think that's a slight exaggeration, but he was certainly part of a group that thought about collective leadership, that was constantly negotiating, that was compromising. Whereas Xi Jinping seems to have emerged as a much more dominant figure in himself, one who's less interested in compromise. What's important about this party conference for him, party congress for him, is that there is an unusually high turnover of of people. So, for example, of the seven members of the standing committee of the Politburo, five are technically due to retire, the other two being Xi Jinping himself and Li Keqiang, uh, the prime minister. So he has a chance to pack the major institutions of, of the party with people that he has um, approved of or promoted or encouraged. Uh, the same is true of the army. There's been a tremendous turnover in the army, largely due to a big anti-corruption drive that has now lasted five years and has taken down some very, very senior figures. So Xi Jinping, through a variety of means in the last five years, has um, consolidated his power in ways that I think we haven't really seen um, for well since the days of Mao and possibly Deng Xiaoping. Now, if he is gathering all this power around himself personally, uh, is there a constituency for it, or is he doing this just on his personal strength? I mean, what, how is this happening? It's pretty hard to tell because, you know, there are limits to what we really know about what goes on in the party. Um, but one key ingredient has been the anti-corruption drive. And, uh, you know, anti-corruption drives are, are, are a fairly kind of standard bit of kit if you if you arrive at Xi Jinping's position partly because what you inherit are all the people your predecessor left behind um, and a lot of the policies your predecessor left behind. And if you want to make any change at all, you have to find an excuse for it and an anti-corruption drive is a pretty good way to do it. But it went much deeper for Xi Jinping because, you know, what what they're saying about, about his leadership is, you know, Mao Zedong saved the country, Deng Xiaoping saved the economy. Xi Jinping's mission is to save the party. By the time he took over, the party was, you know, notoriously corrupt. Uh, Nobody really believed in communism very much anymore. You know, China has more millionaires and billionaires than the United States. And if you look at the National People's Congress, the, the Chinese parliament, there were, there were, you know, people in there were richer than in the U.S. Senate. So, you have to ask yourself, what's the meaning of, of, of communism? What's the meaning of this ideology in a state that has practiced you know, very successful state capitalism for 30 years? And that was the question that Xi Jinping was facing. You know, what's the story of the Communist Party now? Um, and you need a good story to justify 
staying in power and monopolizing power the way the party does. There had been an expectation before Xi Jinping, I think very widely held in the West, for example, that as China got richer, um, the party would step back, as Deng Xiaoping suggested, that there would be more liberty and eventually there would be some kind of political transition. But Xi Jinping has put all that into reverse and he has made it his mission to restore the party centrally to Chinese political life, but also to intellectual life, to educational life, you know, in a way that we really haven't seen for quite a long time. For example, uh, he's now putting party cells into all or business at every level, including private business, not just state-owned enterprises where there were always party cells, but into, into private business too. So there isn't a, a, a corner of China that's going to escape you know, the leadership or the supervision uh, of the Communist Party. And this is a, quite an unexpected turn of events because in, you know, other regimes or in other, other emerging economies which have made a transition from democracy, they have done it at pretty much the level of affluence that China has attained. Um, but now we're seeing it go in the opposite direction. How much popular support there is, is very hard to tell. Certainly, the anti-corruption drive is very popular. And Xi Jinping's other core message, which is essentially making China great again, you know, the China dream, restoring China to a position of, of respect and power in the world, that's pretty resonant, too, with a lot of people. So the people who don't like this message tend to be, you know, the more educated, the urban middle classes who have a more um, international outlook, who like culture, who don't like censorship, young people who want to use the internet without without fear and without censorship. So there is discontent, but right now if you're discontented, it's probably wise not to say so. I'm speaking with Isabel Hilton, editor of ChinaDialogue.net. And now let's talk a bit about uh, his thought. Back in the old days, of course, uh, there was communism, which had uh, political philosophy and a utopian urge behind it. Like it or not, it was something. What is the core of uh, Xi Jinping thought? Well, there's not a lot of utopianism. Um, if you look at the speech today, it was a, a speech of interest to the outside world in that it did have this core message of, of, if you like, making China great again. Since 1989, since the Tiananmen incident, the party has built up the idea that China was a great power throughout history, that it's an old and continuous civilization, and that in the 19th century, because of the action of, of hostile foreign imperial powers like Britain or France or, or, or the United States, China was knocked off its, its position, that it suffered a century of humiliation until the Communist Party uh, got the country back again and, and kicked out the foreigners. Now, that narrative had not been a particularly strong one under Mao Zedong because Mao was promising socialism. When the party stopped promising a socialist utopia, it had to come up with another story. And that was the story that was suddenly everywhere. So they were building museums to national humiliation. This is the only country I know that has a day when national humiliation is, as it were, celebrated. Um, so it became a kind of core part of the message. And it was a truculent nationalism. Um, but the point of it for the party was that it's the party that restored China's independence and its, its sovereignty and the party is going to restore China to a position of wealth and power and respect in the world. And that's pretty much the core of Xi Jinping's, Xi Jinping's message. And, and the other element of it is that in order for the party to be able to do that, it has to find again its moral core, its ethical being, which had largely been lost in the great, you know, rapid uh, economic development when the party got pretty rich and uh, and the people didn't get quite so rich. A lot of them, you know, did very well or did quite well. Some of them did spectacularly well. But in order to get rich, essentially, you have to be connected to the party in some way. Now, you started talking about this before. There was some thought that, you know, the growth of all these millionaires and billionaires, the growth of private fortunes and with business interests and such, was going to undermine the party's rule. Um, it doesn't seem to have done so. Uh, but how are uh, the political interests and preferences of that class uh, expressed uh, under the current system? 
What's going to be interesting, because there is now a substantial private sector in China, you know, some people put it as high as 60 or 70 percent of the economy and, and an awful lot of jobs have been created in the private sector. And you have very big and uh, national champions. You have you have people like Jack Ma, who are internationally known, and Alibaba has become a global brand. That's relatively new. And if you look at how it happened, it happened, of course, because of entrepreneurship, but it couldn't have happened without the protection of the party. So all of China's big internet companies, like Baidu or Tencent, flourished in China largely because Companies like Google and, and Apple were, were kept were either almost excluded or kept very limited. So in China, Facebook is banned, for example. Twitter is banned. And China built up its own versions of these things, which have now gone global. And so even an entrepreneur like Jack Ma, who started off in a, you know, with a modest company in Hangzhou in his family flat, even he couldn't have done it without the party. And he knows perfectly well that if he gets the wrong side of the party, uh, his business is not going to last very long, even someone like that. So, you know, you do have entrepreneurs, they understand the conditions in which they operate, and they understand the price of being the wrong side of the party. So, you know, it's a mixed picture. And now that that party is entering private companies at every level, the party is also beginning to demand that they own equity in companies, including in joint ventures. And that will allow them to influence investment decisions and all kinds of strictly business matters. So we'll see how that plays out. But this is an escalation of party control. And we're at an early stage of it. So we'll see what happens. And what about China's orientation towards the outside world? Is it intend to become a great power? You know, is it they want to become the successor to uh, the American hegemon. How do they view these things? Xi Jinping has said explicitly that, yes, China you know, will be a great power, but they've also always said that there'll be a different kind of great power. So they won't be a hegemon in the way that the United States is a hegemon. And so far, China has grown to be the second largest economy in the world, may well become the largest, but without taking on the kind of responsibilities that the United States has exercised pretty much since since the end of the Second World War. So not the global policeman, not the rule maker, not the peacekeeper or, or the toppler of tyrants or the protector of human rights, the things that until uh, President Trump came to power, uh, the United States was was pretty much known for. Or, or the issue of the world's currency and, you know, the, the, the U.S. Treasury market, you know, at the core of the world financial system. China has no ambitions along those lines either. Being at the core of the world's financial uh, um, uh, system uh, also implies being the consumer of last resort. And that has, you know, with the rise of China, has, has become pretty unbalanced and precarious. China has no desire to be that. So there are a number of things that China says it doesn't want to be. The problem is that, you know, what what is China going to be? Because if China maintains its current dispositions as far as the outside world goes, then essentially it's trying to operate as a mercantilist power uh, in, in a liberal trading system. That has lots of advantages for China, but its trading partners are getting increasingly frustrated with the difficulties of accessing the Chinese market on fair and equal terms. And, you know, essentially the accumulation of, of profits in China, um, which has meant, you know, an unbalancing of, of the global uh, of the global financial system. So it, there is a feeling that things can't really go on as they are. Now, China itself is at a bit of a crossroads in terms of, of its economy. It's gone through 30 years of rapid uh, growth, really fueled by industrialization, by investment, by infrastructure building. And it knows that it has to transition to a much more efficient, higher value economy with better technologies, with more domestic consumption. So growth is going to be slower. Now, Xi Jinping presents himself as you know, committed to the global, to, to the system of, of, of global trade. China benefits hugely from that system. It's benefited hugely from being in the WTO. But now that growth is slowing, I think that Xi Jinping's priority is to ensure that those who truly benefit 
from the next years of, of, of China's slower growth are Chinese companies. So there is a, a document called China 2025, which is essentially, you know, a, a, a very large import substitution plan. So, you know, it's, I don't think it's going to be terribly easy for foreign investors. I don't think it's going to be very easy for companies that are trying to um, benefit from the size of the Chinese market. Um, because they're going to be faced with either non-tariff barriers or with demands, which have always been there in China, but are getting stronger, that they hand over technology as the price of being in the China market. So in the next round of innovation with electric vehicles, for example, um, companies are being asked to share their technology, which pretty much means that it goes to China. And finally, what are they making of our our, um, ludicrous, idiotic president? (laughs) They are, I guess, like a lot of us, nervously scratching their head about the current U.S. president. In many ways, it has created tremendous opportunities for China. You know, Trump uh, withdrawing from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, you know, the American, the great American trade deal and trade community in Asia, uh, which was going to be a vehicle of, of American influence and ensure that America went on being the rule maker and that if China wanted to join, it had to accept American rules. Well, with one stroke of the pen, Trump blew that up and it left the field wide open for China to impose its rules, to create its circles of influence, to, you know, to create its, its, its world. It'll be a parallel world. It's not trying to bring down the American world, but it's going to limit the, uh, the, the American world. It's going to draw borders around it and limit American influence. So in that sense... Trump has been a bit of a godsend uh, to China, where I think the Chinese are pretty disconcerted. They keep trying to figure out how do you make sense of Trump, which is probably a bit of a meme. But, um, but you know, obviously in North Korea, they're, they're pretty concerned because you know, it's very difficult to imagine a good outcome in North Korea with, with Trump as president. Um, so, and it's difficult enough, uh, even with a, with a, a more... Um, accomplished president, shall we say. That was Isabel Hilton, editor of ChinaDialogue.net. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Now, some of China My China by Brian Eno. Things have changed some in the 43 years since that came out. Next, Alex Vitali. Alex is a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College whose major topic of study is cops. He's just out with a new book from Verso, The End of Policing. This country is sick with policing, and he's got some important suggestions about how to recover from that sickness. Alex Vitelli. Let's start by the, talking about the history of policing. Where did the modern police force come from? Well, we have a kind of conventional academic story about the origin of policing that it begins in 1829 with the establishment of the London Metropolitan Police as a civilian, professional, uniformed police force answerable to local authorities. Uh, but this is a kind of liberal myth-making that views the police as a kind of politically neutral law enforcement agency. But even the origins of the London Metropolitan Police are directly tied to colonialism. Sir Robert Peel, Robert, Bob, Bobbies, creates the London Metropolitan Police only 
after having been in charge of the uh, British colonial occupation of Ireland, where he was beset with uh, agricultural outrages, as they call them, basically uprisings against the agricultural elite. And because of colonialism and wars of conquest and Napoleon, all that, troops were in short supply, resources were limited, so he develops what he calls the Peace Preservation Force in Ireland that becomes embedded in local communities and is kind of the transition from the use of the militia to the use of a fully civilian police force. And he takes that model to London, refines it, and then uses... What was the need in London? So, yeah, he uses that to shape this new industrial working class that is flooding into the cities from mostly rural areas and uh, Mark Neocleos, uh, the British social theorist, has a great conversation or discussion of this issue about how the London Metropolitan Police enforced a whole range of what today we would call quality of life issues that were designed to regiment this new workforce as well as the direct suppression of strikes and unions and other kinds of workers' movements. So that's one trajectory, is that we have to understand policing as a system of coercive state control that's concerned about industrialization. But there are two other really important modes of capital accumulation during this period, which are colonialism and slavery, especially in the Western Hemisphere. And other forms of policing develop in direct conversation with those other modes of accumulation. So. In the U.S., we have things like the Texas Rangers, who initially are charged with the extermination of the native population and then the driving out of Spanish and then Mexican landholders in Texas so that they could be resettled by whites. Uh, We have the formation of the Pennsylvania State Police. The first state police force in the country is created on a model of the U.S. occupation of the Philippines. They bring people who had been in charge of that occupation in to create this police force, which was designed as a more effective and pliable force for putting down the strikes in the coal fields, the iron mills, etc., that's happening in Pennsylvania in the early 1900s. And then finally, you have the trajectory around slavery. A lot of discussion of slave patrols in rural areas, but What I look at is actually the emergence of an urban police force in places like New Orleans and Savannah and Charleston, which are very large American cities at this period. In 1789, Charleston creates a watch and guard that's uniform, civilian, law enforcement oriented, except their primary responsibility is the management of a mobile slave population that works outside of the home of their owners on wharves and warehouses, on piers. And this mobile slave population is greatly feared by the white population and the Charleston Watch and Guard manage them. They have to carry metal badges. They set up speakeasies and reading groups and study groups and religious societies, all of which are illegal. And the police are charged with suppressing all this activity. So the theme here is uh, that the police force uh, arises as an instrument of labor discipline, uh, which is often racialized. Yeah, not always racialized, though. I mean, there's been a certain forgetting of the aggressive suppression of white immigrant ethnic, but in the UK, just white working class movements that have always been at the center of the origins of policing and the functioning of policing. Your book is organized around a series of, what is it, eight or so problems, that uh, political problems, social problems, which the U.S. generally chooses to resolve through the police and criminal justice system. Let's talk about a few of those. Uh, One, just general urban policing. How did the modern strategy of policing that uh, we're now familiar with has become day-to-day life in New York City? How did this emerge? I tell kind of two stories in the book. One is this older story about The fact that policing in its very nature and origins is a kind of suspect undertaking and tied to these oppressive forms of capital accumulation. But then there's a more recent story of just the last several decades 
that's about the rise of the war on drugs, the war on crime, the war on disorder, the war on terror, this massive expansion in the scope and intensity of policing that mirrors in many ways the rise of mass incarceration so that we don't get an incremental increase in prisoner populations. We get an explosive increase beginning in the 70s. And similarly, the scope of policing explodes in in intensity so that lots of things that weren't considered criminal justice matters become criminal justice matter. The management of mass homelessness, the management of a, of a huge untreated population of mentally ill people, the war on drugs. All of this represents a kind of fundamental ideological shift that says that in the wake of the social movements of the 60s and 70s, there's a retrenchment towards a kind of neoconservative approach to social problems, which is that the state is not capable of producing positive responses, only punitive and coercive ones. And so what we see over this 40-year period is that more and more social problems and political problems become criminalized and police become the front lines of managing that. And the standard story is that a lot of this emerges with Nixon and his Southern strategy and uh, deliberate uh, racializing uh, of American politics. How much truth is there to the standard story? Well, there's definitely truth. I mean, those things happen. Jonathan Pfaff in his book uh, points out that that's not the whole story, that policing is uh, a local matter, but also prosecutions are a local matter. And so as much as we see changes in federal law, it's really the decision by local prosecutors in conjunction with police and lawmakers to ramp up incarceration, enforcement, et cetera, that produces the the bulk of mass incarceration. Uh, So I think we can see the punitive turn symbolically in Nixon and then the Democrats trying to neutralize the issue through the Clinton administration. Uh, But what's really happening is what's playing out in local areas, state legislators, local DAs, local police making this transformation so that even if we didn't have any of those changes at the federal level, we'd still have mass incarceration. And also, uh, the, uh, you know, the the standard story is that you know, the Democrat, uh, the Republicans rather, uh, are very brutal. Uh, have uh, you know, just a law and order approach to things, and then you know, Democrats will come in with maybe throwing in a little concern about these things being fairly administered, and throw in a few social programs. But it has been a bipartisan agenda all along, hasn't it? Very much so. Very much so. In part because. The democratic liberal conceptualization of crime and race relations is so degraded that the solutions they come up with repeatedly over the decades fail to get at the root of the problem. So uh, Naomi Morikawa in her book, The First Civil Right, does, does a great job of chronicling this in the 1950s and 60s, how uh, the response to racial unrest is to create a more rational, professional, legally integrated police and criminal justice system that brings us, you know, a return to uh, the death penalty, it brings us the war on drugs, it brings us SWAT teams, etc. It doesn't bring relief for communities of color. It just brings a, a more rational, professional and in some ways legitimating police force. And we have the same dynamic today community policing, uh, diversity training, hiring more diverse police officers, a whole raft of procedural justice reforms are designed to make the police more professional, less biased, but do nothing to address the mission that they've been given. And so it ignores the substantive outcomes of policing, which are you know, racially disproportionate arrests, high levels of violence, and the reinforcement of an ideology of solving all social problems through coercive state power. Uh, you jumped the gun a bit because I was going to get to that, but let's let's explore that now. Then uh, the community policing um, is often touted as a, as a, a humane way to approach policing. What's the problem with it? What is it, and what's the problem with it exactly? Oh, so many problems. So this has become like the this 
this empty word, that uh, term that's thrown around to somehow, you know, repair the problems of legitimacy of policing. So community policing, at least hypothetically, is the idea that the police need to have better lines of communication with the community and that the community through that communication should help the police understand the nature of community problems and the kinds of strategies that could be used to to deal with them, uh, help identify problematic locations and people. So the first problem with this is that it has a very degraded notion of community. The community in these kinds of relationships, and there's a lot of great scholarship on this, case studies, uh, is that the community is made up of a kind of hand-picked group of local elites, property owners, landlords, business owners, religious leaders, and who are willing and interested in working with the police. And when you have a community meeting, that's the kind of people who show up. That's right. And who's not included are recent immigrants, young people, homeless people, people who've been in trouble and been involved in the criminal justice system, people who end up getting targeted out of this process. They are excluded, not always de jure, but de facto in the sense that there's no outreach to them. They're made to feel uncomfortable if they, if they raise uncomfortable questions. They are berated and harassed, and, and there's a huge defensiveness about this. I, I attend these kinds of meetings all the time. And the second problem is that it turns all community problems into problems to be solved by policing. So imagine you're a community that has very real problems of crime and disorder. The ideal would be that you would bring all kinds of governmental resources to the table and you try to figure out a solution and you'd have some principles to go by. Is it, is it cost effective? Is it legal? Does it treat people with as much dignity as possible? But instead we do the exact opposite. There's only one resource at the table, which is policing. And all problems have to be channeled into solutions that can be administered by the police. And what tools do the police have to solve these problems? Handcuffs, ticket books, making arrests, threatening people, use of force, etc. So it, again, is part of a kind of neoconservative program of legitimating policing as the only appropriate agency for dealing with urban problems. I'm sitting with Alex Vitale, who's the author of The End of Policing, just out from Versa. This sort of emerges from deep within the structures of American society, doesn't it? We tend tend to uh, have a law and order approach to all kinds of social problems. Right, but it hasn't always been that way, and of course it isn't that way in other places. So while the 1970s there were a lot of problematic aspects and certainly racial injustices in the criminal justice system, our you know, prison incarceration rates didn't look that much different than what was going on in Europe. There really was this punitive turn that is talked about widely that intensified all of these processes. And it has to be understood in the context of the you know, political economic reorganizations of the 1970s and the, a kind of bipartisan consensus around austerity, tax cuts for the rich, supply-side economics, And none of that works unless there's an ideology that says social problems are the result of, you know, moral failings that will only respond to, you know, punitive state power. Because what's essential is that we don't implicate markets in any way in our social problems. Well, there was an explosion of crime in the 70s and 80s, uh, and there was a cry from all across the social and political spectrum to do something about it. What would have been a more humane way to approach that than what we uh, ended up doing? I think you have to look at each aspect of crime and disorder separately to try to figure out what's a reasonable way to respond. We also have to look at what the origins of those crime spikes were in terms of the, the profound economic and cultural social changes that were going on during that period and how those things played out. I try to approach these things at three different levels. I look at the level of the individual, of the community, and then more broadly in the society. So we need programs that deal with individual level needs, people who've been 
thrown out of mental health care systems, who've become homeless, who've been, experienced trauma in their lives. We need help at the community level. You know, we have these runaway levels of racialized, isolated poverty in the U.S., high levels of childhood poverty, and we leave these things largely unaddressed. We need to produce healthier communities and undermine this uh, isolated poverty. And then we've got to do stuff at a societal level about about economic inequality and, and its racialized character and what follows from that. So there's no simple answer to what you would do differently in the 60s and 70s. I think uh, our approach to young people was completely off. We doubled down on things like gang suppression policing and criminalizing low-level drug enforcement. And this contributed, I think, to a kind of anomic um, cultural position, if you will, that led to a lot of the criminality. And of course, it had a strong racial component to it. And we're making those same mistakes today. So I, I'm concerned about the mild upticks in crime we're seeing right now and what that might hold for the future. Yeah, well, and Trump and Sessions are really talking like it's the 1970s all over again and want a heavy crackdown. Which is ridiculous, of course, because crime is, is a small fraction of what it was during that period. It's still high by, especially violent crime, by European standards. But, of course, everything Trump and Sessions do should be understood as a kind of political theater uh, of about, you know, ginning up the politics of fear and resentment among their base. So we can't really expect much in the way of rational policy from them. And the, you know, the good news is, is that the federal government has a pretty limited impact on local law enforcement. So whatever they say, there are some very different things happening on the ground around the country. You know, the bad news is, is that on the ground around the country is still a lot of bipartisan austerity and uh, unwillingness to invest in alternatives to using the criminal justice system. As I said earlier, you organized the book around, I don't know, eight or ten specific areas, uh, things like uh, um, sex work, drugs, uh, gangs, the border. What was really struck by the schools chapter, uh, and a little factoid in there which really blew me away, was that there are more cops in the New York City schools than there are counselors of any kind. Uh, describe what's been going on with the, the policization of the, of the schools. In these eight substantive chapters, I take an area of policing that is quite prevalent today and try to show that it's just a really bad idea, that it doesn't need to be reformed, the reforms that are being talked about are not a good idea, that we need to fundamentally question why police are in this business at all. And schools is like the low-hanging fruit, if you will, because school policing, which uh, emerges primarily in the 1990s, is based on myths that are highly racialized and don't really have much to do with reality. And the most important of those is the super predator myth that's produced by neoconservative criminologist uh, Diulio, based on no real research, just armchair hypothesizing, looking at some demographic data that in the 90s, we were going to get a generation of sociopathic juvenile super predators who would just as soon kill you as look at you and that they were going to turn our schools and our communities into a nightmare. Of course, every single year after he made that prediction, juvenile crime fell and continues to fall. <laughs> so the prediction was completely outrageous. Nonetheless, Clinton passes in the 96 crime bill a massive amount of money to support school police and all across the country, there's this massive ramping up of putting police in schools, despite the fact that schools are the safest place that young people spend time. So when you walk into a New York City school now, the first person you see is a cop usually. Almost, yeah, almost always. In fact, several. Now, they're not always armed, full police. They work for the police department. They detain people. They search people. They harass people. They enforce disciplinary codes, etc., they hold people for uniform officers. There are also large numbers of fully uh, armed police that work exclusively in the schools, and many more that are based in local precincts but are attached to the school and will patrol after hours and uh, when students are let out, etc. 
And then we've seen these horrific videos of kids being like beaten and abused and handcuffed in schools. I taped my own video of students being threatened with a taser outside Midwood High School because they weren't walking home fast enough. <laughs> um, what is the... What are the effects of these sorts of uh, policing interventions on the kids? Well, it's corrosive. Victor Rios has a great book called Punished that is based on research he did in Oakland with black and brown young men there. And he said, everywhere these young people go, they are criminalized at school, in recreational facilities, on the streets, and that this produces an identity because identities are socially co-produced. And so when you're constantly harassed, treated as a threat, criminalized, subjected to punitive disciplinary policies, this creates all kinds of caustic cultural responses, anger, and even trauma. And it sometimes gets normalized, but if you dig beneath the surface, these kids are angry and alienated and this is pushing them out of mainstream society, not into mainstream society. It plays a role in the formation of gangs and other kinds of crews. I got a student working on this very issue out in the Rockaways right now where there's a real sense that the punitive school disciplinary policies are actually contributing to gang formation out there. So this is deeply problematic. It's resulting in deaths and injuries of young people directly from the hands of police but more importantly is telling them what their position in American society is, which is that of a suspect. Uh, and, and each of these eight areas you, you look at closely, um, you, you review the kind of mainstream tepid reforms that are being proposed or being you know, experimented with. Uh, but the problem is, you know, to steal a phrase from Ezra Pound, it's all wrong from the start, right? These places, our whole approach is wrong from the start. We don't need nicer school police. We don't need school police to be mentors. We don't need school police to get better training. The whole enterprise is completely untenable. And all the research shows this. Every study ever done has shown that school policing does not produce real safety for these young people. In fact, in some cases, it, the results show that students feel less safe, that there's even been increases in crime in schools after school police have been brought in. Uh, they haven't present, prevented mass shootings. There were armed police at Columbine High School. It made no difference. Whether it's that, whether it's criminalizing sex work, whether it's continuing the war on drugs, these endeavors don't need to be reformed. They need to be replaced completely with non-punitive alternatives. That seems so deeply against the American grain, or at least as currently constituted. It's a it's a totally radical idea that would have seen quite would have seemed quite tepid, I think, forty years ago if I had proposed it then. But in this current moment, it seems completely beyond the pale. But if anyway, uh, Trump's theater of punitiveness is creating a kind of space to move beyond the kind of tepid liberal reforms that were playing out little by little under the Obama administration and not really making any difference. And so there is, I think, a space. There's a lot of critical discourse right now about prison abolition and, and police abolition. Legal scholars like Dorothy Roberts and Andrea Ritchie and Paul Butler have all come out with an explicitly abolitionist politics around policing and prisons just in the last few months. And I think we're going to continue to see more of that kind of discourse. So we're a long way from any kind of political implementation along those lines, but social movements on the ground like BYP 100 and the Youth Justice Coalition in Los Angeles and Beyond Policing and other groups here in New York what they're doing is they're calling for the kinds of positive problem-solving initiatives that we need, and, f and they're calling for them to be funded by reducing resources for police and jails and prosecutors. Yeah, and finally, and you, you began touching this, but the, the title of your book, The End of Policing, does suggest the abolition of policing, even if it hints at it. Um, is that a reasonable goal? Is that something that people should be fighting for uh, at all? Well, I try to take a very kind of practical, empirical approach to it, which is to say we should approach each problem from a position of what's the best way to solve it with the fewest collateral consequences. 
And so what I found was that for huge amounts of what police do today, there are clear evidence-based alternatives. And if there's a problem where we can't find an alternative, then so be it. So rather than starting, which many people do from the position of imagining a world without police, I say, imagine how we could solve problems concretely, and let's do what we can to move in that direction. That was Alex Vitale, a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and author of The End of Policing, just out from Verso. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, some of Hoyt Axton's Peacemaker. It's about running away from the Vietnam-era draft, but the theme of being high on gunpowder in a federal order seems timeless. Till next week, bye. But it's getting kind of scary and it's getting harder breathing and I think it's getting time for me to go. Peacemaker who tried